I'm turning today to the first letter of Peter, chapter 2 and verse 18. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the fraud. And our subject is never out of his care. Well, these are words that would not please many people, but they are the duty of believers. Servants, be subject to your masters. And here the principle of order in society and uh, respect for all uh, authorities, civic authorities, is extended to employers and employed. Servants of all kinds, from slaves to uh, the most skilled operatives, craftsmen, professionals, be subject to your lawful employers and seniors. That's the command of the word of God to believers. Obviously, exceptions apply. We obey God rather than man. We do not comply with anything which is immoral, wrong, against the word of God. But nevertheless, in all general respects, servants be subject to your masters with all fear. Well, the modern translations go for alternative words. Fear is translated as respect or something of that kind. But fear is the original. It is fear in the Greek, with all fear. Much better to ask, what does it mean, rather than to dilute the sense of the word uh, for modern acceptability. I think not so much fear of employers, but uh, fear of disgrace, fear of having to be corrected, chastised, disapproved of in some way for some fault, perhaps misconduct, some improper, reasonable compliance. Fear of that with all fear. I'm not so sure it should just be changed into respect. The fear word is surely significant and that would be healthy for us. Yes, we respect, be subject. It's quite strong language. Be under, obey, be submit to. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear of failure and disgrace. It's a call to conscientiousness, respect, yes, but carefulness and fear of just reproof. Surely. But then the, the apostle, the inspired apostle goes on to say, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. And there the Greek is rather strong because it's literally to the crooked. But it means more to the twisted, to the unreasonable, to the unjust, we may say. You wouldn't obey somebody who was crooked in the sense of being criminal, utterly unethical, immoral, 
No, now you'd obey God rather than man. So this would be, this crooked person is somebody who is unjust and unfair and unreasonable. But if he's only unjust and unfair and unreasonable, you do your utmost to comply. That's the word of God. It isn't, dear friends, my idea. I, with you, would recoil from this. This is the word of God instructing us. Not only to the good and gentle, the reasonable, but also to the froward, the grossly unfair. And then we come to words which have an inherent but powerful promise. The whole passage, as we shall see, taken to the end of the chapter, has a gigantic promise for us. And this is what makes it so special. Verse 19, for this is thankworthy, worthy of praise, if a man, for conscience toward God, out of a sense of duty to obey God, that means, if an employee, out of a sense of duty to obey God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully, and the grief there is sorrow, literally, so endure some kind of conduct towards you that makes you miserable and depresses you and brings you low, but you endure it. The word translated endure means you bear up, you carry the weight of it, you bear up through it. Well, this is thankworthy before God, praiseworthy. God will have praise for you and it will be expressed, the passage goes on to imply, in terms of blessing. We'll show you that as it goes on. For this is thankworthy, worthy of praise. If a man out of duty to obey God bears up under sorrows heaped upon him by an unreasonable employer and suffers wrongfully. So that's the passage in plain terms. It's thankworthy, praiseworthy. Now to look at the opposite for a moment in verse 20. For what glory is it? And glory here means what honour is it? What is it valiant? This is the idea behind the word. Is it a valiant thing? A courageous thing? A praiseworthy thing? If when ye be buffeted, the buffeted word is interesting. It means to, to be kind of, not punched exactly, but wrapped with the fist, as though insulted. With the back of the fist across the face, wrapped. You can imagine it in ancient times when employers would be unreasonable towards their servants in a physical way, and in an insulting way. So it's wrapped. It can be done in words or in other kind of more sophisticated actions in employment. 
what valor is it or honor is it to you if when ye be wrapped for your faults, ye shall take it patiently, endure it patiently, bear up under it. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, that wrapping, that unreasonable harshness, that insult, that pressure, that uh, uh, conduct to your disadvantage, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. The word translated acceptable is very full of meaning. Acceptable, you could translate it as many do, commendable. It does imply reward. It's acceptable and something will be given for it. If you take it patiently when you suffer unreasonable attitude and conduct, when you do well, this is acceptable with God. He's watching all the time. The eye of the Lord is upon you. If out of duty toward him, you patiently bear up under the unreasonable, well then, it will be accepted, commended, commendable to God and commended by him. There'll be a blessing in it for you. There'll be a measure of protection, but there'll be a mighty blessing. The passage is going to go on, as I'll show you, to reinforce this. What kind of blessing? Perhaps greater instrumentality in your Sunday school class, in our preaching, in our witness, in our mutual help of one another, in our good deeds of kindness, in answered prayer. It'll be expressed by the blessing of God in terms of assurance and certainty. Who knows how God will bless you on account of the fact you are doing things which commend you to him. Of course, this you can't do enough to be saved. Nothing can commend you as far as salvation is concerned. That is entirely by grace. We come with nothing in our hands to God as needy sinners. We plead for mercy and for forgiveness and for new life. And we receive it freely from him. We cannot earn it or deserve it or contribute to it. But once we are Christians, we are learning that we can so conduct ourselves as to be praiseworthy and commendable. And that implies a blessing, which is proved by the example of Christ in a few verses. So who knows what blessing will be ours on account of our obedience to God in this area of life. So that helps us. We will comply even with unreasonable employers. Of course, this has a bearing on all kinds of things. Today, we have far more rights than they had in those days. You do have certain protections in law and very often in the workplace to which you may properly and freely appeal. 
if you're treated unreasonably. But still there's a lot of unreasonable pressure and distasteful conduct comes from line managers and employers which we are not protected from and we have no resort to appeal over. And we bear it patiently out of conscience, out of a sense of duty toward God. And he will bless and help in some other and perhaps much more important and precious area of life. Well, then the passage goes on, verse 21. If we were in any doubt of the instruction, for even hereunto were ye called. You were called for this. Oh, no, 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 no. I was called to salvation. I was called to eternal life. I was called to repentance and faith and to walk with God. Not to have to take unreasonable behavior from superiors so-called and employers. I wasn't surely called for the, to this. When I was saved, there was no mention of attitude to employers. Oh, yes, there was, says Peter. For to this were you called. Certainly you were called to salvation. You were called to wait for Christ and to look for him and to make heaven your hope. You were called to wonderful blessing. You were called to learning and instruction about the living God, to understand the deep things of God, to feed your soul and your mind on limitless truth every day of your life. You were called to great things. You were also called to this, to obey lawful authorities and to be a good employee and conscientious. And it applies to all of us. For even hereunto were ye called. In what way was this part of my calling? Well, we heard the message of salvation. We heard the call to repentance and to faith. But there's something more. We heard the call of Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians in a very beautiful way when he speaks of the time when God was pleased to reveal his son in him. Part of our calling is that we see Christ, not literally, of course, not in any form of vision, no, but in our mind's eye, we're given the understanding by illumination of the Holy Spirit in our mind's eye, we see him, as it were, suffering and dying on Calvary, dying for sinners, dying for me. We see him bearing away the punishment of sin, all my sin, and suffering that eternity of woe compressed into the space of hours and taking away my guilt and my condemnation and my eternity in hell. We see what he suffered, 
wrongfully on behalf of others. We see the treatment that he accepted. And in that precious hour when we were saved, in that time that we saw Christ, we would do anything for him. We would have taken any hardship for him when first saved. We would absorb anything for his name's sake. Don't you understand? It was part of your calling. You just knew when you were saved that this is the sort of person you should be. Obedient to him, out of conscience, out of a sense of duty to him, to accept any amount of reviling, any amount of scorn, any amount of contempt for Christ's sake, and you would do it. It was very much part of your calling. You understood that. And as time went by, it slipped out of our minds. As time went by, we began to get prickly once again. And we began to resent being ill-treated. And we began to shy away from the possibility of being scorned for Christ's sake. And we began to shy away from being compliant and obedient to the due order in which God had set us. But it was part of our calling, not only to repent and to trust in Christ, a calling also to holiness and obedience to him, but a call to even accept poor treatment and hardship. This has to do with a lot of things which I'm not going to rule on. How do you look at strikes? Well, you have a right to strike these days. But Christians have to think very long and hard and prayerfully. Perhaps if it is something very just, there is a very just cause. There's some terrible wrong that has been done. Yes, there may be a just cause. But is it for more comfort? Is it for more spending power? When I'm far from starving. Is it for something even better? What are we going to do, friends? And at the same time, obey God. Something for us as individuals to think about very conscientiously and earnestly. How far will we go? For even hereunto were ye called. And then the example of Christ. Look at these great words in verse 21. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Now, we don't think so much these days of Christ being an example to us on Calvary's cross. And there's a reason for that. The theological liberals who don't want to talk about the atoning death of Christ and how he suffered and died for sinners in their place to purchase their salvation. They want to shy away from that, that he is the Son of God, eternally God, eternally divine, 
who became a man and suffered in our place. And so they start to emphasize things like his example of passive resistance on Calvary's cross. And this is what makes it special and precious to them because doctrinally they wish to deny the atoning death of Christ. And so because they talk about the example of Christ on the cross, we tend to react away from that, wrongly, shy away from that, and talk more exclusively about the atoning work of Christ. But don't you see, both are true. Chief among the work, in the work of Christ is his atoning death for sinners. But his example to his people is also there. And that the Apostle Peter brings out, and we shouldn't neglect it. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, at the same time, you may add, leaving us an example. The word translated example means a pattern to follow. We love him. And we want to be like him. Of course, until we enter glory, we cannot be like him in purity and holiness. And we can never be like him in terms of sharing his divinity. But we long, even now, to resemble him more and more. And he left a pattern on Calvary, as well as its atoning power the cross is a pattern for us that ye should follow in his steps. That's uh, an illustration of the disciple of those days. You know about the Greek philosophers. We don't commend their ideas, but their followers literally followed in their steps. Wherever they went, so their followers went hanging on their every word, compliant with their instructions. Same with the disciples of Christ. Where he went, the disciples followed in his steps. And we're like disciples. We're following everything he did, his behavior, his teaching. What about Calvary? We can't atone but we can be patient in suffering as he was. We can be ready to accept knocks and buffetings and wrappings as he was. He is our model. He is our example. And we won't lose hold of that. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example or pattern that you should follow his steps one by one. But then the Apostle Peter opens out the matter in verse 22, and here you get confirmation of the promise of God that he will bless you on account of anything you have to undergo out of a sense of duty to obey him. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, he was perfect. 
We are far from perfect. We're full of sin and failure. We may not deserve what the employer meets out to us, but we are still full of sin and failure. He, he had none who did no sin, not one departure from the law of God, neither was guile, trickery is the Greek, deception in any form, trickery, slickness found in his mouth. He was perfect and yet he accepted the suffering for our sakes. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, railed upon, scorned, attacked, did not retaliate, reviled not again. He never retaliated. He never answered in kind, maliciously. And we follow in his steps. When he suffered, and so grievously, vastly more than we would ever suffer, he threatened not. But he could have done. He of all people could have done. He could have said to them, you do this to me, I will condemn you everlastingly. And he could have shown some token. He could so easily have said, I will punish you eternally, and just to demonstrate this, I will open the earth over there, and there would be a mighty local earthquake. But he kept his peace, not a word in retaliation, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, to the Father. Well, he was God himself. But of course, while he was on earth, until his resurrection, right through Calvary, while he was on earth, he was living as a man. Though he kept the power of God, the power of divinity, which he could have exercised, he did not do so because he was representing us taking our place. He had to live a perfect life as a man in order to be our saviour and our scapegoat and to suffer and die on our behalf. It was his life of perfect obedience under phenomenal provocation that earns heaven for all of us. His suffering and death did away with our guilt his life of obedience and righteousness deserved our eternal bliss. The two sides of the work of Christ. So, because he was taking our place and humbling himself and accepting humiliation, like a man, he committed himself to the fairness of Almighty God. And what did the Father do? What did he do in response? Well, he approved the resurrection. And by the power of Christ, he was raised from the dead with the full approval of the Father 
to show that his offering on Calvary was successful. He ascended into heaven. And on the day of Pentecost, he poured out from on high his all-powerful blessing. And 3,000 people were converted in one day, followed by another five, followed by more thousands. And the gospel went throughout the known world. God vindicated him. He suffered in compliance with his duty to suffer and to die for sinners. He had said to the Father in eternity past, I will go to earth, I will suffer and die for my people. He kept his words. That was praiseworthy. God gave him a people and the Holy Spirit came down and worked in the hearts over time of millions and millions of people. The massive vindication of Christ impatiently carrying out his duty. So there's an implicit promise of great power. Christ is an example. Would this make sense, this passage, if Christ was set forward as an example to us to know how to suffer patiently without our having the accompanying blessing that arose for Christ. He suffered and died patiently on Calvary and the outcome was the salvation of millions of people. For us, we accept suffering patiently and there is an outcome for us because it is commendable to God of blessing and help and assurance, and loving kindness. It runs right through the passage. The promise is there, and it's unmistakable. Verse 24, and I must come to conclusion. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. You see the parallels, friends? Because he bore our sins in his own body, we were given life to live holy lives and to be reconciled with God. Good comes out of it, and it's the same for us. By whose stripes, stripes translates a very interesting word, which you could put more literally, his um, scourge wounds. The wounds arising from his scourging. By whose scourge wounds? Isn't that negative? Scourge wounds. Ye were healed. To him, it was deep wounds from scourging to us it's wound closure and wonderful healing and life the suffering led to life in Christ and he's an example and your suffering will lead to blessing and usefulness and assurance and understanding and the help of God and rejoicing in some area of life. 
for ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd. The shepherd feeds, and bishop, that's overseer, overwatcher, the one who feeds you like a shepherd, the one who watches over your souls. You've returned to him. Just note the principle through the entire passage. It's implicit rather than explicit, but it's very, very clear that the Christian duty of compliance and acceptance of hardship and difficulty for Christ's sake results because it's praiseworthy and commendable in blessing and life and happiness and peace and assurance in the Christian life. There's the duty, it's onerous, but there's the mighty blessing, which is wonderful. And that's enough for us in this study. May God bless it to us all.